Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule, the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they would like to put into a time capsule, four things they love and one thing they loathe. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest in this episode, I'm delighted to say, is the actor and screenwriter Joanna Scanlon, winner of the Best Actress Award at the 2022 British Academy Film Awards for her performance in the film After Love. After leaving Cambridge University, Joe worked at Leicester Polytechnic, lecturing in drama, and then for the Arts Council. At the age of 34, she decided to try and become a professional actor. She was cast as a nurse in peak practice, then as a midwife in the film The Other Berlin Girl with Natalie Portman and Scarlett Johansson, a nurse again in Doctors and Nurses with Aid Edmondson, and finally a doctor in Doc Martin with Martin Clunes. She finally broke free of the medical profession with her role as the press officer in the Armando Iannucci comedy The Thick of It but she returned to the ward with her multi-award winning nominated drama Getting On which she starred in and co-wrote with Joe Brand and Vicky Pepperdine the series was adapted for HBO in America and was nominated for an Emmy and ran for three seasons Joe also wrote Puppy Love with Vicky Pepperdine which they're also adapting for HBO I wonder if there's a part anyway Joanna has been in loads of films and TV shows over the years including Kinky Boots Notes on a Scandal in the Loop, Testament of Youth, Bridget Jones' Baby, Spaced, My Family, Stella, Rev, The Woman in White, The Accident, Dracula, and most recently, she's been playing Ma Larkin in the new Darling Buds of May, The Larkins, for ITV. She's soon to be seen in Avenue 5, another Iannucci production starring Hugh Laurie. You might be interested to know that this is one of the rare episodes of this podcast where my guest and I are actually in the same room. My study, in fact, at home, whilst my wife and Joe's husband prepared lunch downstairs. Oh yes, I really suffer to bring you these conversations. So, let's find out what Joe would choose from her life to preserve in a time capsule, and whether she misses working at Leicester Polly. Here is the fabulous Joanna Scanlon. 
we're going to talk about five things from any time in your life that you would like to put into a time capsule. Four things that you treasure, and they can be they can be tiny things. Mm -hmm. They can be something that other people would look at and say, well, that's really, what's that? It's nothing, it's just a piece of paper or it's a stone. But when you look at it, it reminds you of something that you really loved. Four of those, but one that when you think about it, you think, oh, God, I wish I could forget about that. Yes, well, I'm doing quite a lot of clutter control at the moment. So <laughs> <laughs> at the moment, I'd like to throw away pretty much every item in my house, but I can't. I'm deeply no. attached. Um, yeah, I thought coming into this lovely room here that it does feel like a bit of a counsellor's environment. It's nice, soft, and we're sitting opposite each other. And indeed, this is this kind of stuff that does get into that territory, doesn't it? What you care about, how you add up to something, how you add it up at the end of the day is some kind of value through objects, I guess. Yeah, but it can also be just memories. The sort of things that in a way, I suppose, you, you forget about until you think about them. So well, well, any ideas? Yeah, I mean, let's do it through different times of one's life, yeah. I guess. I had a, on paper a very idyllic childhood in the countryside, in the middle of North Walian countryside with very little around us, just a farm up the road and a few fields that my parents owned and quite a lot of animals. So it was the quintessential kind of idyllic childhood, which my mother, I think, was very much hoping that we would experience. What that amounted to was a lot of <laughs> what's commonly known as neglect, I think. <laughs> and um, it just meant we were free and easy. Um, yeah. My brother and I spent a lot of time just wandering and completely free. I don't remember any supervision of any kind ever, really. Um, that can't quite be true, but that's how it felt. <laughs> and there was a place that we called the Fairy Glen, which was, I think, it must have been an old cottage that had fallen to bits and yeah. ruins and a little copse had grown up around. And it was in one of the fields, in the far corner of one of the fields, and that was a regular place to go and find things. So we would go and find tiny little chippings of crockery. You know, so this is probably part of the whole socioeconomic drain from the 19th century of yeah. North Wales through to Liverpool. It was probably that that cottage was owned by smallholders or mm. homesteaders of some kind. Then they had probably not been able to make it economically viable or had been attracted into this great industrial growth in Liverpool because so many people went from that time to go and be roofers, slaters, all sorts of other kinds of jobs in service, etc. in the big metropolis of... Was it North Wales then? North Wales, mm. yeah. Yeah. So the I think if I could still had one of these tiny little chippings, mm. which would have had a bit of rose on it or, you know, pink or blue or something that you can still find anywhere. I mean, people do it on the Thames every day, don't they? Yeah, yeah. And it is miraculous to find a, a remnant, a tiny little remnant of somebody's life in the past. Mm. And I think that's always been a an interest. I mean, I, I love history and social history particularly, and I've always wanted to know about them, wanted to immerse myself in what it would be like to have lived at that time. Mm. So that place, I think, and that little remnant would be one, mm. um, because it's the magic of childhood in itself, in that we believed this was a magical place. 
we believed that fairies did live there and we were always looking for them but couldn't never find them. There were lots of fairy rings and things, you yeah, know, yeah. because they, there was so evident. signs of mm. fairies, mm. but we didn't ever find them. Um, and it was a place that you were trying to see from the footprint of the ruins, you know, where the kitchen would have been, where the sitting room, I don't think that existed, mm. did it? It was living space, I mean. Yeah, um, Yeah, exactly. We were always kind of looking into that and then finding these tiny little remnants. Mm. Sort of, I think children are very close to the ground physically. And that's, you know, you're, you're looking at wild flowers, you're looking at getting stung by nettles all the time, and you're grubbing to find things. Tiny things as well. Uh, maybe particularly girls, you know, that there's a, a real trend in girls' toys and it's it's consistent through time, I think, that all girls have something that is full of lots of little pockets and lots of little boxes and they put tiny little things in them and they have this collection of things. So ponies and or dressing up and all the clothes and the shoes. Absolutely. Uh, when I was uh, much later in life, I worked at, as a volunteer at Wormwood Scrubs Prison um, doing a play scheme and I would go and help with looking after children during prison visits. Right. And it was run by the most wonderful play instructor. I don't know, you know, it's like a specialist in play. Yeah. And she trained us up. And this is exactly as you say, Mike. She said, what you'll look at, particularly between sort of ages one and a half to maybe five or six, is that boys will tend to build things up in order to smash them down. <laughs> but the you know, the first thing is the building and the second is the demolishing. Yeah. Um, and girls will find things to put things in mm -hmm. that they will, you know, little pockets or, as you say, little bags. And, and I'd never, ever thought about that before, never noticed it. And then as I was in the room just observing the play, yeah. that was happened over and over and over again. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Are they being prepared for life, do you think? Is men just go around sort of, look what I've done, but now I'm fed up with it, I'm going to destroy it. Yeah. Well, Maybe. I mean, it brings us on to the dangerous dangerous area of, mm. you know, nature, nurture, gender, sex, etc., which is not worth going into. But it, it was a very, very interesting thing to observe. And certainly for myself, as a child, I loved tiny things. I still do. If mm. you show me one of those little whimsies or something like that in a bric-a-brac shop, yeah. I want it. I want to hold it and I want to put it inside something. <laughs> that hasn't gone away, not at all. But that's strange because I remember as a boy being fascinated. My aunt had a charm bracelet and I think it was a way of sort of collecting her wealth together rather than putting it in a bank. But I could spend hours looking through this charm bracelet and she would make up stories about what each one was for and where it came from. Did you, you obviously had a nice relationship with her. A very, very nice relationship. Yeah, yeah my auntie Franny. She was yeah. a gorgeous woman. Big, loud, busty, yeah. sexy. Warm. Yeah, full of warmth. She yeah. sounds like my grandmother, actually, who uh -huh. is also very big, busty, sexy, loud. and uh, Well, not exactly loud, but she was a singer and um, an amateur singer. And she was very much, I, I would do a lot of things with, with her. They lived, my grandparents lived with us when we were children. Oh, right. In a cottage that was attached to the house. So it was Brilliant. sort of physically the same building, really, and there was a door that, between the two. And I would go into her house, and she had a little Austrian... Um, she'd been on holiday to Austria at some point, which in those days would have been... A, they didn't have any money or anything. They weren't wealthy. But she, they must have taken a trip. And she had a little plastic house that had a chimney on top, an alpine chalet, and you... Clicked the Alpine Chalet 
chimney and looked through a hole and vistas would, you know, alpine vistas would appear. (laughs) Gorgeous. And I spent so much time with my grandmother with that little thing or her showing me other things exactly like your Auntie Franny. Yes, in the sort of colour that you had in films of the day, that really bright colour. Technicolour, yeah. Technicolour, yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. It's quite nice, I think, in that situation, if you've got a, an elderly relative living with you, if they're in their own place, and so you can go and visit. Mm. But they're also not there all the time. Yes. I think it worked really well for us. When I say neglect... <laughs> <laughs> well, I was I going think... to get on to that. Because, I mean, is it neglect? Is it neglect being left to your own devices as a child, if they feel that you're safe? I think it's a brilliant thing. I think it's a wonderful way to grow up left to your own devices. I mean, my memories of that time are all about being with animals and being alone or being with my brother mm. or just discovering or, you know, getting stung by nettles or beetles <laughs> or wasps or, you know, just experiencing life without a parental eye mm. at all, nobody to run to. So kind of I think that does build up a sense of... Um, decision-making, like, oh, maybe it's not such a great idea now to go towards those nettles again, Yes, you know. But that said, our world has changed so infinitely. I mean, my Mm. brother and I used to stand, the farm had a milk herd, dairy herd, and it was before pasteurisation was essential Mm. um, by law. So Nancy, who was the farmer's wife, ran a milk round for about six different houses that was that were within a sort of radius of about a mile. So therefore there was a milk stand at the bottom of the lane where she put the churns where the milk lorry would come and take the surplus away. And my brother and I would stand on that milk stand, I think it was called, at the end of the lane where there was a road. And our big excitement was to wait for a car to go by. Mm. A car to go by. And Mm. we would wait sometimes a couple of hours (laughs) waiting for a car to go by. (laughs) Yes. And eating gooseberries and I think that that is what's changed I mean traffic Mm. plus the knowledge that we all have now about hideous abuses that did go on then I think yes yes I think they did yes but we just didn't know about them to the same extent parents didn't know there are just as many missing children from that time and there are just as many children who were awfully abused I think but People didn't talk about it. The papers yeah. didn't talk about it particularly. No. Myra Hindley, that's why she stands out. That's right. She's the only one. Yeah, it was it was very under under wraps, wasn't mm. it? Yeah. And I think we could all, you know, by the grace of God, any one of us could have found ourselves in a lot of trouble. Yes. But but we didn't, and therefore that ignorance being bliss gave us a kind of I think a developing resilience that um we had certainly as children and a lot of pleasure. Yeah. A lot of pleasure. No, it sounds gorgeous. It reminds me very much of Dirk Bogart's childhood. Have you ever read his autobiographies? No, I know they're very well written because he was... Read his very first one. I think it's called A Postillion Struck by Lightning. And uh, it's you will find it very reminiscent. Thank you. Okay, then. I won't go into why you were working in a prison, but perhaps that'll come up later. Or will it? Could do. Could do. Could we'll do. See. Yeah. If not, I'll bear it in mind. <laughs> but there we are. Uh, so, all right, well, I'm going to take a tiny little piece of crockery and it, it, it's a little, just half a rose on it. Yes, half a rose. Half exactly. a rose yeah. on this tiny little piece of crockery. And yeah. uh, that goes into the time gaps to remind you of all the freedom and joy of running around the countryside. Yes. Fantastic. Yes. Very larkinish, actually. Uh, Very yeah, of course. Around the same kind of period of time as well. Yeah. Um, Were your parents farmers, by the way? 
No, they weren't. My father worked for a, a brewery in Liverpool and he would drive from where we were every single day, which was bloody miles. So, in fact, the choice of living there was very much to give you that sort of childhood. It was, yeah. Right. Yeah. It, my mother had had a similar childhood herself in Lancashire and she had wanted, she had Welsh grandmothers and she'd wanted to go back to where they had grown up, mm. which was this part of Wales near um, Hollywell. Right. Yeah, where, John, oh. where Jonathan Price comes from. <laughs> and in fact, his dad had the van that used to drive around delivering groceries around our lanes, wow. which I remember very well. Oh, how brilliant. Mm. Mm. And he's a bit older, isn't he? So- he's about, I think he's about 15 years old or something like that. So he'd long gone, you know, he wouldn't have mm. been around, but his dad was still around. Yeah, so I saw him play Petruchio at the Royal Shakespeare Company when I was about mm, 16 or 17. So oh. he so he would have then been, yeah, quite 30 or something. Yeah. He was bloody brilliant. It had the famous opening, in fact, where he came into the auditorium dressed as a tramp. And then security guards came out and said, sorry, sir. And he started going, oh, fuck off. Get off, I'm come and have a look. Then jumped on the stage, started haranguing the audience. Oh, brilliant. And then got annoyed and he pulled the whole set down and destroyed it all. And when it was all finally on the floor, the lights went down and the play started and he was in the play. It was going to be Petruchio. It was, the audience gasped. Oh, that sounds incredible. You can only do it once though, can't you? You can, uh, you can only see it once. I hope the review won't give too much away. I hope not. And also I think it was agreed amongst everybody, don't tell people about this. Because part of the joy of going and seeing it again would be to see the reaction of other people to go, yeah. oh, my God, they've all fallen for it, like I did. Yeah. Brilliant. Anyway, let's move on to something else. Let's move forward in time then and find something where from your teenage I think teens, years, yes, teenage, probably teens. Yeah. So I went to a boarding school, which I firstly went to a boarding school in Essex, which is a long way from North Wales, mm. when I was about, well, I'd actually gone to a boarding school when I was six, which was quite local, but it was weekly boarding, the Bridgeton Convent. And then when I was nine, I went to a school in Essex, another convent, Newhall, which is still there in some form, but it's no longer a convent. But I was so badly behaved that <laughs> I the, the nuns rang up my parents and said, this isn't going to work. You've <laughs> got to take her back. She's it's a too- wild child. Anyone <laughs> I- would think she's been running around the countryside without any sort of supervision. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> In fact, I was telling my husband the other day about some of the bad things I did there, and he was—he was still appalled. I mean, he was. Well, you did what? I mean, it was, and I—I I, bit of me just goes, well, yeah, I did actually, and, and I've, I've yet to kind of feel the shame of it somehow. Uh, but through the adult lens, you look at it and you think, oh gosh, that actually mm. was really terrible. Anyway, um, so therefore, I had to go to another school, and my parents had to find another school, so they sent me. We were Catholics, and my mother was very determined to give me a Catholic education, but her attempts had failed. Mm. So I ended up going to a church in Wales, Anglican school, which was also a boarding school, which was only 10 miles away from where we lived. So that if there was a problem, they could drive round and, you know, mm. give me a, a talking to. And I actually really enjoyed this school. I was very happy with my... It was a, it was a very nice bunch of friends mm. at that school. They were, I had great friends. And, of course, I was inducted, really, into the Welsh system of creating drama, 
through poetry, song, and many other kinds of kind of performative, creative endeavours. Mm. So we sang every day. I mean, everybody had to do a lot of singing and a lot of something in Welsh, some in English. We also had to do a lot of poetry, a lot of plays, a lot of orchestra, a lot of choir, a lot of... You know, this was like bread and butter, which mm. it is in Wales. And, and the system is very different, I think, from the English system because it's essentially out of the Eisteddfod tradition, which is one of excellence but it's also community. It's not about showbiz. It's not about the individual. Mm-hmm. And it's not about applause. It's about sort of something different from that. It's about channeling creative culture, performative culture. And of course, some, you know, there's not, I'm not saying there's not lots of rivalries and all sorts of, you know, things in the background of that, but it is a different way of thinking. Mm. And it's not let's put the show on right here. It is let's do this thing to the absolute best it can possibly be done. Yes. As in expressing Welsh culture in the bardic kind of way. So, and that was, I mean, that's a, when I say that, it's, I, it's looking back on it that I can see that rather than what I experienced at the time. What I experienced at the time was sort of just a lot of doing of it physically every single day. So, but so I was very happy from that point of view, I was very happy with my friends. And when I got to the sixth form, and this is the object I'd like to take in, I had a bottle of Clinique toner. So by this point in the 70s or 80s, 70s, late 70s, Clinique was the sort of fashionable um, skincare regime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had a little yellow bottle of moisturiser and, and a big bottle of toner, um, which I emptied before I came to school and filled with gin. <laughs> And every Sunday morning in my house, I would invite a couple of friends <laughs> and and give them a tot of this gin. We had no tonic or lemon or ice, but I thought this was the grown-up thing to do. So I would bring it in partly out of the naivety of that and the silliness of it, but also the rule-breakingness of it. I mean, mm. I loved to break rules. I smoked all the way through um, from 16 onwards out of the window I had my little gin um, clinique bottle, which I would refill whenever I went back to my parents. And uh, we would, you know, I think being a rule breaker was remained very, very important to me. And it still does. Mm. I mean, you know, there's a bit of me that just give me a rule and I really want to break it. Not <laughs> from the point of view of being destructive, but because I want to challenge the idea that this is authority partly that somebody else can set the rules but Mm. it's also that the nature of the rule is often not to meet the purpose of the rule that's what drives me insane yes is when the rule comes up and i think but that's not going to achieve what you think it is it just gets in the way it just gets in the way exactly um and i believe in people having more of an opportunity to think for themselves but also to find consensus in Mm. in a community so it's not that sort of totally kind of libertarian Tory kind of like I don't like anyone telling me what to do. It's no. more of a sense that people have autonomy, but they also need to connect with other people and come to an agreement as a community. I yeah. believe in community. I believe in community as a place for artistic practice. I believe in it as a place for a sense of belonging, and I believe it fosters responsibility. And in a way, the way that you should behave and the way things should happen are obvious in those situations, aren't they? You don't need them to be written down or to be told. People will organically work it out. 
Yeah, yeah. There is a logic generally to mm. things and, and a path of least resistance, which which takes you to, ultimately, if you trust people enough, takes you to a good place. Yes. But, but it does require communication skills and, you know, there, mm-hmm. it requires patience, patience mm. and, and respect. And a willingness to adapt your own thoughts, your own ideas. Yeah, yeah. I was just talking yesterday to somebody about a director, a young director I'd worked with, who had this extraordinarily beautiful habit of never giving you any notes. You would say, is that all right? You'd say, do you, do you like it? And you go, yeah, I quite like it. Okay. And he'd just let you do it. And everybody did whatever they felt was sort of right. And by the end, we'd all directed ourselves to do the thing that he wanted us to do. So I remember just before we opened saying, I think I've this scene, I've, you know, now we're running it. I get a sense that at this point, I should be much more, much more angry. I should be really angry about the whole situation, shouldn't I? And he said, well, if you think so, have a go at it. And I said, okay. And I, it then occurred to me as I was doing it, this is what he wanted me to do in the first place. He just has sat for three weeks and let me do the wrong thing in the confidence that eventually I'll understand. And I think that's a brilliant way to direct. That's I, incredible, It actually. is incredible. Well, it's incredible from someone young, I think. Mm. Um, yeah, but I'm going to name him. His name is Anthony Lau. So if anybody ever comes across him or thinks of employing him, I would. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's um, very trusting, isn't mm. it? And... Mm. Um, and that's what you trust. Actually, that's a key. That's a key notion, isn't it? Mm. If you're trusted, you definitely behave better than if you're distrusted. Yes, and in fact, rules tend to suggest distrust, don't they? They do. Yes. Just they yesterday, do. I watched my son play football, and somebody said, "Could everybody stand behind the courtesy rail?" And I said, "Isn't that a discourtesy rail? Because it's slightly discourteous to suggest that we need a rail in order to behave ourselves." Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those manipulative words, mm. courtesy rail, isn't it? When mm. it means the opposite. It, it does. It does exactly mean the opposite yeah. of what, what, um, <laughs> what the words suggest. Yes. So do you find it difficult then if you come across a director who is very prescriptive? I really do, actually. Mm. Um, well, it, again, it's a trust thing. So it can work in all sorts of different directions. I mean, I have noticed the older I've got the less people will give me prescriptive direction. Mm. And sometimes I really need it and want it. I mean, I'm not necessarily the right... I mean, I have lots of thoughts as, a, as an actor and lots of opinions, like every actor, and I'm not backwards and coming forwards in terms of expressing them. But at the same time, I don't think I'm necessarily right. No. I need those checks and balances of other people's thoughts. Mm. Uh, and particularly with good directors who will come in and then just give you either something that is more general and will allow you to find the right thing or sometimes just faster, louder, less in that place and more in that place. And that works too. So I I believe in everybody being quite full and frank in their discussions, but Mm. not necessarily having that authority over you to say you must do this because that, of course, forces you internally to kind of, I mean, if the character needs... I mean, the, I, what I don't like are those directors who think they're being very clever by creating an environment in which they're going to... If your character is supposed to be very angry, then they unconsciously are... Or they're taking you to an unconscious position of anger. Mm. You know, it's, And you do get people who think they can do that. But uh, it, it's very rare. Yeah. Well, I've, again, long in the tooth. I mean, it's such a weird thing to be so old. But... Um, <laughs> But you do see that over time, 
it's only people who are kind of nice and workable that really carry on in longer careers. Mm. You might have flashes in the pan Mm -hmm. and you might have people who come in and do something utterly brilliant. But what makes it sustainable is that ability to respect others that you're working with. I can't say I'm perfect and there have been moments when I have slightly (laughs) got irate around certain certain things and people I've been working with, so I'm far from perfect. But I know that what really works is kindness and generosity and respect Mm. in the workplace rather than intimidation. Yes. And don't feel guilty about the fact that you have occasionally (laughs) just found it beyond the pale. (laughs) My lovely guest, Bridget Forsyth, she was a wonderful actress, but the thing that she chose to put into the time gap she wanted to get rid of was when she put her hands around the throat of the man she was acting with because she couldn't take it anymore. Oh, my goodness. Mm. Yeah, I've not made the physical gesture, but I can know the feeling. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, you haven't worked with me that often. (laughs) This time, this time, what time is it now? (laughs) In 20 minutes, just wait and see. (laughs) Brilliant. I think that represents my teens, really. It was a lot of disrespect of the rule of rule. Mm. Not exactly law, but, you know. I didn't believe in it. and But that didn't mean that you'd failed academically. You didn't reject that side of it. No. You, you were no. self-disciplined. Yeah, but academically, the things I did well in academically with, was, was a sort of accident of nature. It was just that I was interested in the topics. Mm. I loved biology. I got an A in my biology. I love my history. I got an A in my history. Do you know what I mean? It was where I was interested. Yeah. Um, where I wasn't interested, more able, like maths and... Uh, well, probably just maths, actually, or physics, which I had to drop. It just didn't do well in it because I wasn't interested. So, in fact, that's something I'm going to... I've got now thought of an object I'm going to put in for a little okay. bit later in. All right, that brilliant. connects up. Well, let's put the Clinique bottle of gin <laughs> into the time capsule. That's a brilliant thing. OK, that's the second thing. So what's the third thing in your life? Right, I can smell a lovely Sunday lunch waiting for us in the kitchen, so we'd better take a quick ad break while I put the white wine in the fridge. We'll be back soon. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. 
Welcome back. Right, the red wine is breathing. Good. Let's find out what else Joanna Scanlon would like to preserve in her time capsule. If we'd recorded this an hour later, I have to say it might well have been my wife's rhubarb crumble and custard. So this would be my 20s and 30s. And I think I'm going to put in a painting. Not the real thing. Mm. A poster of that painting, as I think... Probably whoever owns it, maybe the Tate or someone, won't let us take the original. What is and the it's original? It's a Samuel Palmer mm. drawing. Samuel Palmer, local to Kent, of course. Again, Larkinish. Very much worked around where we filmed the Larkins. He did a lot of painting of individual cottages that are still, you know, very evidently the same cottages. Mm. Samuel Palmer, 19th century painter, sort of did a lot of watercolours, quite romantic in a way, very distinctive. They looked like nobody else's. And he was a rural chap. And the reason I'm putting this picture in this poster of this painting, which I think is probably at the Tate or somewhere like that, Mm. is because I, when I was 29, I had a complete collapse, um, which was termed at the time ME, chronic fatigue syndrome, CFS, I think they call it now. Um, And it was just a complete neurological, like, I can't carry on. Mm. Um, And I had a job at the time as working at the Leicester Polytechnic, becoming De Montfort University. It was in transition. It was at the time when polys were becoming universities and getting much bigger and having much more funding and many more students were going. Um, Quite a lot of stress with that job. And for whatever reason, I had this collapse And I had to kind of stop work for a year. Um, And I knew one of, I I felt very, very mentally unwell. So I'd be quite sort of, had these fantasies almost that, that I was, I thought I had AIDS. I was told I had chronic fatigue syndrome, but I was certain that I had AIDS. And my brain almost split into two. So one part of me was certain that I had AIDS. And the other part of me knew that that was a manifestation of some kind of, let's call it sexual guilt, or that just I had a moral structure in my brain, which Mm. I hadn't lived with because I'd had another social order that had superseded it. So really, I mean, if you talk in straightforward terms, it's like very religious background and childhood, then hitting into the eighties and all of the sort of boyfriends that I'd had at that time and other sexual experiences. And I couldn't possibly put those two things together. I'm not saying that's the cause because there were many other factors, but it manifested in the form of this sort of almost fantasy version of my thoughts and a simultaneous awareness that this was a fantasy. Mm. So it was like a split. And the other bit of my brain, let's call it bit of brain number three, I don't know how Freud carves these bits up, but (laughs) um, said, right, okay, if you're imagining things that you truly believe to be real, and at the same time, you know that you're imagining things that you believe to be real are actually false, then you need to see a therapist. Mm. You need to go into therapy. So I didn't have any money or, you know, therapists even then were beyond my reach financially. And I did a bit of research and I discovered that I could join something called the British Association of Psychotherapists Low Cost Scheme, but I had to qualify. And qualifying meant being assessed by an NHS psychologist for a few months, firstly. 
and then being referred. So I went to, used to go to the hospital, the local hospital, to see this chap who would fall asleep in my sessions. <laughs> I mean, I'd start, I'd start the first sentence and he would I'd see his head going like yeah, yeah. it's like he's driving a car down a motorway and he couldn't and he, and he needed a cup of coffee it's supposed um, to be me with the problems <laughs> and he'd obviously been institutionalized in this job and was hopeless but I sat there week after week thinking this is going to get me my ticket to some therapy mm. and duly after a year he then referred me to this program And I ended up being given a therapist. Now, this therapist, I saw her on and off for 15 years, uh, intensive, very intensively at the beginning, and then less so as Mm. time went by. And she had this painting, this Samuel Palmer painting, and it was of a man walking in the moonlight with a staff, holding a staff, and his dog at his side, Mm. just down a pathway towards this sort of woody, moony beautiful image of uh, the future Mm. and it was proper therapy when I say proper therapy I'm not disparaging any other form of therapy but it was the classic let's call it classic of the couch you know lying down on the couch not able to see her face and it worked I mean it I'm so grateful to that woman so grateful for what she did for me And I'm so grateful to that scheme that allowed me to go for therapy sessions for £10 a session instead Mm. of what would have been 100 or something Mm. crazy and was utterly unaffordable because it took time. I remember thinking, oh, I'll be in and out of here after a couple of years. That'll be, I'll be sorted. And I remember her just gently behind me saying, well, let's see, you know, let's just see. And 15 years later, and, and you know, the best thing about this, Mike, the final moment, the moment when I knew the therapy was over was when I told her something that had happened to me that was really good. Mm. And she was sitting behind me, as as always, very quiet generally, and I heard her sniffing. And um, she had always put a packet of tissues, Kleenex tissues, beside me on this couch. She deliberately placed it there at the beginning of the session. And I just picked up these Kleenex box and handed them to her. And I knew then we were done. How brilliant. And she did as well, which is why she was so moved by it. Yeah. How fantastic. Isn't it odd how people disparage the idea of therapy when so clearly it works for people? It worked for me. Mm. Um, Well, I'm not saying that it works for everybody and I'm not saying that it would suit everybody, but it clearly does suit some people. So the idea of... Some people find it a great source of comedy, you know. Yeah, I know. I mean, and and of course, there's a lot that's funny about it. I'm sure you can look at it as as extremely funny because, it, you know, people disparage it for being self-indulgent or for being navel-gazing or for being, uh, you know, charlatans mm. who are running the show, I mean, or manipulative, exploitative. But I think, and I, I do actually believe that it's about a relationship. It's about a relationship that takes place in a kind of, ordered space Mm. very ordered you know you've got your times and all of those sorts of things and boundaries but it's the quality of that relationship and I think human beings have the ability to heal each other we do I Mm. mean you know ordinary friendships and love relationships and having children and parental relationships can heal us yes and some people have a gift of presence which is in and of itself very healing. Mm. I mean, 
the other, you know, the other day at the BAFTAs, um, just to drop that in. Um, Have you been to the BAFTAs? <laughs> <laughs> meeting Lady Gaga. <laughs> you know, she has a quality about yeah, her I'm that sure. is like a healing quality. I mean, wow. I know this is, I, I mean, this was just my feeling around her, is that she's she has an aura of somebody who is who's way beyond, you know, just an entertainer. Yeah, yeah. She's clearly extraordinary. Extraordinary. Yeah. Um and and that's what people who are attracted to going into therapy, I think, uh, you know, from the point of view of giving the therapy or framing the therapy, often have that quality about them. Mm. They're just able to be present. And that presence alone, that attention can be a very healing process. A bit yeah. like your director. It's not far off your director no. saying, oh, what do you think? Mm-hmm. You know, until mm-hmm. eventually you go, oh, I do need to be a bit angrier now. Yes. It's exactly the same process, but obviously for a different purpose. Yeah, yeah. If you look at what's gone on recently with everybody having to stay away from everybody else, the effect of not being with people and not having that physical contact and talking to people has become very obvious. I think, in society. I know a lot of people who are really suffering as a result of two years of not having social interaction, the sort of social interaction that they're used to. To me, it's obvious Mm. that we all need that. We need each other. Mm. That's why I believe in community, and that's why I believe in community art and community theatre and community practice, because it brings us together and gives us something to do together. What we're actually doing is exchanging of ourselves, Mm. of our deepest selves, and... That is generally a positive experience. And the challenges are worth it, you know. And it's not to say it's all nicey-nicey. No. There, there are challenges in, in dynamics with other people. Mm-hmm. But we learn through them yes. and we grow through them. And also we can learn if you're dealing with it as community and trying to do something with people, then so much of life is pushed into the area where you're actually just trying to beat other people. You're trying to be better than them. Mm. You're trying to win. Mm. And in those situations, that's not what you're doing at all. You're not trying to win. You're trying to win in a way together. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah, better together. Mm. I think the trained company's uh, slogan, isn't it? (laughs) 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 It's some advertising slogan, better together. But it it is true. There's a grain of truth in it. It really is, more than a grain. Brilliant. So I shall take that fantastic. I love the image. I can picture the image Mm. of the man walking with his dog and his staff. Into the moon set. Yes. Or the moon rise. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It is the moon rise. Yeah, Mm. it's exactly that. It's a beautiful painting. And as I say, we should try and find out where it is and (laughs) put it at the bottom of your podcast notes. But it's a beautiful picture. Although I might try and find where it is and then uh, nick it and put it in the time capsule for you. So that would be good. (laughs) Thank you. Just the poster, obviously, not the real one. We don't want to deprive the nation. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, let's move on to our fourth item. Okay, so I got cured to the extent of lying on that couch and saying, I want to be an actress. Mm. I'm going to be an actress. I'm going to give up my job and be an actress. And sorry to interrupt so immediately, but had you not thought that before? Oh, no, I had. Um, What had happened in terms of my career um, sort of stops and starts was that I'd had the schooling that I told you about where I did massive, massive, massive all the time. I, I planned to be an actress from the moment I was four years old. Right. I loved performing and I loved being together. I loved making things together with other people and mm. I just, you know, enjoyed it very much. And, and I you're also in the enjoyed when you did the footlights. You? I did footlights at Cambridge. Yeah. I did yeah, I did loads and loads. Mm. I I think I had, you know, I had a competency tick 
It was it was kind of I could do it sort of thing. But then I left Cambridge and couldn't do drama school because my local authority wouldn't give you another grant. No. My parents didn't have any money. I couldn't borrow from them or anything. So I ended up just sort of throwing myself out into the universe and just could not get a gig. I mean, just couldn't get an agent. And it was the days when we needed equity cards. I tried to get an equity card doing a street theatre version of uh, doing a sort of weird thing dressed in boiler suits with a friend of mine to Madonna's Like a Virgin. But that (laughs) didn't actually produce an equity card. So I just couldn't get a job, couldn't Mm. get a way in. And that's what took me through my local community, back to community, community theatre at Rotherhithe, Rotherhithe Theatre Workshop, which was run by Dartington College of Arts. This is all a bit boring, but Technically, those places had very interesting projects at that time. Through my community theatre, I ended up doing sort of directing and performing and working with all sorts of different kinds of people, diverse kind of communities at that time. And that took me into teaching, Mm -hmm. which is why I'd ended up. So I just got frustrated and ended up teaching. So I still had that burning inside me. On the therapist's uh, couch, I said, you know, I remember saying it to my therapist, I'm going to give up my job and go and be an actress. And I was waiting for this person to say, that's not a sensible idea. You've got a job and a pension and you, you're doing really well in your job as well. You know, you've been promoted every five minutes. And, mm. But of course, what I was doing in that job was acting. I was acting being a teacher. And then I worked at the Arts Council immediately after that. And I was acting being an arts administrator. Mm. I could m- fake it, mimic it. And she didn't. She didn't say, no, don't go and do it. There was a silence. She wasn't saying, go for it, girl. Yeah. She wasn't doing any of that. But she was. She gave me the space to, to make my own mind up. And so then I did. So then I gave up my job and I had nothing, but I was in that brilliant position of having nothing, sold my house, you know, just had no mortgage to have to pay. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, it seems to me that the job of, a, of an actor, and it's slightly changed now with Zoom and things, but is to be available to go for auditions and to be to be available to be able to look for work. Yes. That's like the first job. And, and then when the job arrives, to say, okay, I'm off. Yeah. I'm going wherever it is. I'm going to That's go right. there and do it. And be able to afford, not have to take a job for the money all the time, you know, mm-hmm. so, so that you have got some sense of choice in it a little bit. So anyway, I got myself sufficiently, you know, no overheads to be able to to start to say, hello, I'd like to be an actress. And then actually what happened is it happened really quickly. So I got a job really quickly, a tiny little something, and then another tiny something. And then suddenly, and really, I've never been out of work since then. No. So that was... And ironically, the whole profession saying, where the hell's she been? (laughs) Well, I was, was you know, hiding in my kind of neurotic, unable to cope stage of my 20s oh and the other key thing here and it does relate back to my object of the gin bottle (laughs) my Clinique gin bottle was I stopped drinking at the point that I had that collapse I stopped drinking and I do firmly believe that that was a very big part of me being able to because there was something about me and drink that just didn't work Um, I didn't have to go into any conscious process of stopping drinking. It happened naturally because I was unwell. Yeah. But then once I was well enough to sort of, you know, have a sip of wine or something, I just didn't want to do it. And then that's gone on forever. And I just still feel like that. I think if I had had to deal with hangovers and also been able to jump out of some of the unpleasant realities instead of face them through drink, 
then I probably wouldn't have been able to sustain a career. For me, it was essential that I was kind of waking up sober and Mm -hmm. no hangovers and not partying all night and stuff. You know, that, that just feels like a big part of... I mean, it, I think it's made me boring in some respects, but it's also it's, it's also been essential, you know. It's um, brilliant fun, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I have to say, I've been to a number of parties since I stopped drinking, and I really enjoy it. Yeah. I really enjoy being not the person who's drunk. The only thing that happens is at about 10.30, I start yawning, and I haven't got something <laughs> to keep me going, no. you know, so I end up having to leave perhaps a bit earlier than, yeah, yeah. than, than others. But it's been important for me to have a clear head, definitely. Yeah, so... On to this next object. I got a wonderful theatre job with Thea Sharrock directing in Top Girls. Um, and it was one of my first big theatre jobs. It was Oxford mm. Stage Company and we had a little spell in the West End. We did it for nine months. And Thea introduced, because most of the cast were really young. I mean, I was 40. I became, or rather, I became 40 during that tour. Yeah. But most of them were really young and they were pretty much just out of drama school. And Thea herself was only about 25 or 24 or something crazy. So we had a, a sort of mandatory warm-up before the show, which we had to do, and we had to do it for nine months. So you know how shows tend to you start off at the beginning and there's a warm-up and then gradually everybody sort of ends up doing their own thing or nothing. Mm. Well, in this one, that never happened, partly because the blessed Hattie Ladbury, who's recently died very, very sadly, was leading that cast, and she had a most wonderful spirit energy about her and she was always encouraging us to take these warm-ups very seriously Mm. so one of the things we had to do in our warm-up was you might remember it's a toy it's a thing called a bop it it's a plastic thing it says twist it hunt it whatever blah 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 pull it pull it shake it or something there's four different things so the plastic bop it would be we'd stand as a cast in a circle We'd press the button and it would say pull it or whatever, and you had to pull it. And if you did it correctly, you'd then pass it on to the next person. And if you didn't do it correctly, so it would go eh, eh or whatever, um, you were out. Mm. So we'd start every night with a circle. So it's actually a really good actors just before a show kind of thing to do uh, because it just gets your brain sort of thing, hand-eye coordination, brain, you know, the whole thing mm-hmm. kind of comes together. Somebody should develop one for actors specifically. <laughs> that would involve the descriptions, cheat it, steal it, <laughs> and fuck it. <laughs> there wouldn't be time. <laughs> just about to go on the half speed call. Um, so when we started this, I was so terrible at it. And I realised that basically I had never done anything in my life, and never tried to do anything in my life that I was bad at because I'd had enough that I was good at to be able to kind of avoid it. Mm. And this demon came up in me of humiliation and pride and just not wanting to be bad at things. I couldn't bear it, the idea of being bad at something. It was too much for me. So I tried to get it, you know, I tried to sort of change the warm up or whatever, but no, no, nobody was having any of that. It was just, it was going to carry on. And if you were bad, you were out first time, you were out first time. Mm. Well, the weeks went on, the warm ups went on, and I gradually, gradually got a bit better and a bit better and a bit better. Until eventually I was pretty much like everybody else. And actually at the end of that tour, all the producers and everybody came um, so there's a big table of about 40 of us, the cast, the crew, and all the producers and backers and whatever. 
and we had a game of bop it around this table with the 40 people, so you had to pass it on. And I actually won that very last game of bop it. And I was the last man standing, last person standing, woman standing. And it was the biggest lesson of my life because I realised that, firstly, you can learn, you can change. You're not stuck in the person that you think you are. And now, of course, this is all backed up by science, this um, neuroplasticity, Mm. so that the brain actually does change. So you can start learning Russian at 78 and do it for two years and your brain will have changed and the Russian section of your brain will have grown. Mm. They know that now. And they used to say, oh, no, as you get older, your brain cells die off, but not true. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. You you can teach an old dog new tricks. Mm -hmm. And I learnt... The, you know, there was nothing wrong with doing something that you weren't good at. There's nothing wrong with failing. But failure is terribly, terribly important. And mm. it was one of the things I'd avoided for years. I didn't want to fail. I didn't want people to look at me and think I was bad at something because somehow my self-esteem wasn't big enough to be able to take it. And since then, I've been trying to do loads and loads of things I'm really bad at. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of the things I'm good at, like running. I'm so bad at running, I can't tell you. I mean, it's not running, (laughs) whatever I do. But I really enjoy it. And and for those moments, you know, I feel like I'm Usain Bolt. And I've recently been acting in Welsh. You know, the effort and the struggle of it has been really intense. But I can feel the brain changing and growing. And I've loved, loved it. And I'm, I can cope now with the feeling of being I mean it does still sting it does still hurt Mm -hmm. but I can endure that feeling of the stinging pain of humiliation for something that I know is on the other side of it which is growth so the bop it machine (laughs) would be something that I would definitely put in because that was that was a real life lesson for me and that's a special company of, in fact, it's one of the actors who's leading you into it because uh, I've worked with big companies where they can afford to employ someone who does the warm-up. And they're brilliant. They're always fantastic fun and you wouldn't miss it for the world. I'm always there well early. Yeah. And, and it's a social event because everybody from the company is there on stage together. Those are brilliant. But it's true that if you're in a company where you're just touring around and doing it, people turn up at different times, they have different methods. But it's brilliant, that thing of for a company to have... Again, it's the community of the company, yeah. as you say. Yeah, and it was very cohesive and it brought us all together. And Hattie, I'm so sad that she's died so mm. young because she was a force of nature and the most inspirational person. Even as a very young woman, she had leadership qualities and, and she took us all a long way. And the show was a wonderful show and it went on for a long time and we all got a lot out of it. Fantastic. All right, then, Bop It goes into the time capsule. Brilliant. Uh, so we really have only got one more item, which is something you want to get rid of. Hmm. What would I like to get rid of? It seems to me that you've gone through life and have found the things that are wrong in your life and have dealt with them. Yeah, it's hard to say you'd want to get rid of something because I've survived. Mm. You know, I mean, mm. I, d- I don't mean to be grandiose or, or to say that I've had it any worse than anybody else. Yeah, not only survived, grown. Yeah. Developed and become, you know, I mean, I don't want to necessarily go back, but it is a wonderful thing. And it was a wonderful thing for everybody watching the BAFTAs for you to win that award. I can tell you from everybody I've spoken to about it, that the whole acting profession leapt to their feet. 
with the joy of it Aww. because it was it, it was one of those it was a recognition of yes we know that mm. oh thank god for that somebody else has recognized it and it doesn't have to be somebody who's a major film star it's just a bloody good actor mm. has won this thing for a brilliant performance well I, I do i hope that it's that again that sense of like i stand in the business of being who i am which is older fatter you know i've played mainly character jobbing acting roles for years years and years i hope that what other actors see is themselves in that you know that it's possible absolutely given the right framework and given actually to be all credit to bafta for changing the way they look at their awards voting processes that actually good work isn't about yourself it's about all of us. Yeah. It, I mean, I, that's I know that's going to sound like I'm being kind of humble bragging or something stupid, but it's. I genuinely think it's true that we all stand together. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's nothing for me and and you. I'm sure like the moment when you and another actor are playing together, whether it's screen or theatre or or just having fun in your kitchen when you're doing the washing up. When you come together, you look and you find something. Yeah. There's just simply no high like it in my experience. You can't really do it on your own. And if no. you are doing it on your own, you've got to be having that with an audience in a very real way. Yes. Or a director or a camera operator. There's always a dynamic. It's not splendid isolation. But there's also that wonderful thing, the thing that you say of accepting now that you're willing to do things that you might not be good at, that leads you to take roles that are dangerous, that are a risk for you. Because, as you say, I've had a very nice career since I started acting. You know, it's just one thing's followed another. And they've been roles that I knew I could do in a way. And suddenly you're going into roles that you say, well, actually, I'm going to be stretched here. I'm asking myself to do something that I might not be able to do. Yeah. I yeah. might look stupid doing this. Yeah, yeah. And that risk paid off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, I, I, you know, life's not much fun if you don't put yourself in those. If it's safe, I think it is. I mean, I, I've just never been somebody who wants to be bored. I like that feeling. You know, it's a slightly adrenaline junkie thing of yeah. just liking it to be a bit edgy and a bit uncomfortable. And then, of course, moaning and groaning about it to everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Thoroughly enjoying a good bitching session about the very situation I put myself in. (laughs) And and then coming out the other side and flopping and being exhausted and asking the people around me to pick me up again. I mean, it's 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 not easy to be around. But I think it's an important part of creative life. You know, I do think, I do believe in every single person's creativity and I believe that creativity is about finding those kind of uncomfortable places and, mm. and being in them, you know, that, yes. that taking a breath, just waiting for the lights to go down, that kind of, and here we go. Mm-hmm. Uh, with no idea what's actually going to happen. Will yeah. it be what we practised or won't it be? Yeah. It's a brilliant thing. So I what can I put in that? In the, What object can I put? I think if anything, it would be something along the lines of, my lack of confidence at different points in my life. It would be worrying too much about things just not working out mm. instead of getting on with it. And I suppose that's that's that lost decade in my, of my 20s. It's unfortunately a lost decade because that was the decade when people earned a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. <laughs> and I've never caught up. No. Um, but, you know, <laughs> Tompi. 
<laughs> well, hopefully now. When I speak to you next and uh, you say, oh, I'm off doing a film with Lady Gaga. You know I, what I would put in as a physical object that represents that would be one of the many letters I got from agents saying, we're very sorry, we're not interested. <laughs> you know, and I still have them all and they're all from all those big agents. I mean, one of, you know, Duncan Heath is there, and he's, who is now my is the boss of my agency. Mm. And there's, they're all sitting there and they all say, no, thank you very much. And I, I think those I could happily lose, really. Yes. <laughs> they represent though. that lack of self-belief. Yeah, yeah. Let's put that in. Let's get rid of it. Bury it deep and forget about it. <laughs> but everything else, absolutely gorgeous. How lovely to talk to you, Joe. Thank you for giving me the time. Let's go and have lunch. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> you have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Joanna Scanlon. Do subscribe to this podcast and please rate us on the podcast provider you're listening on. Some of them even let you write a review, so you can have a go at that if you like. You can keep in touch with me and my time capsule by following either or both of us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. And you can listen to the theme tune on Spotify anytime you fancy. It was written by Pass the Peas Music. Feel free to browse my back catalogue, if that doesn't sound too euphemistic, and we'll be back with another cast-off production of My Time Capsule very soon, once our producer, John Fenton-Stevens, has made it sound all lovely. In case you're wondering, we had roast spatchcock chicken, roasted veg and new potatoes with a rocket salad, and the aforementioned crumble with either custard or cream. Yummy. Most of which I resisted. If you've listened to other episodes of this podcast, you'll know why. Joe, her husband and I, also resisted the wine, despite there being a bottle of Verve Clicquot, a Chablis and a bottle of Rioja on the table. But don't worry, it didn't go to waste. My wife got absolutely shit-faced. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.